think it's smart, but whatever. I don't know. Anyway. I guess it depends. Let's not talk about white nationalists. Yeah, let's talk about racist stuff. Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. We are a true crime and horror podcast that brings true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm Alexandria Youngway with my lovely co-host, Sunshine Bellon. Sup, homies? <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you see the the comment, the the review that we got on iTunes? Oh, no, I forgot to look at okay, it. I'm sorry. Go look at it, like, right now. It is the sweetest thing I've ever read. It brought me so much joy. Copy. Paste. Here. <laughs> the top one? Mm-hmm. Why Can't I Stop Listening by Triple M Light. Oh, cute. Doesn't that That's bring great. you so much joy? <laughs> That brings me so much joy. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah, I found that, Aww. or I, I bothered, I was like, maybe I'll see if we have enough reviews to have, like, an actual rating yet, and that's when I saw that, and I was like, oh my god, because I had literally just finished, like, that day's worth of research on dead children, and needed. <laughs> right, I'm sure, I'm sure. So, to whoever... Triple M light is. I love you, random citizen. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> but yeah, it, it made me really happy. It's like the best review ever, especially from yeah. like a total rando. Well, and okay, so here's the thing. I think that the only thing better than a five-star review is a five-star review with like legitimate claims, mm -hmm. right? It's super nice if people like your podcast and mm -hmm. want to leave you multiple stars or whatever. But it definitely feels way more genuine, and I think it helps us more as far as uh, other people who might want to listen in the future. Like, if there's if they're making a coherent claim and backing it up with evidence, like, this is why I like this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's so sweet, because you know they've been listening to it, and you know they're paying attention, mm -hmm. and they feel us, yeah. which is great. It's it's very appreciated. It's, it's really necessary when you're doing the kind of research that I've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I agree. Yeah. I am slowly dying, sunshine. <laughs> well, aren't we all? <laughs> but, but hey, we're almost done. And if we're being totally honest, this is really the climax. This isn't the end of our series. Our series ends next week. But this is... <laughs> I mean, it's, so it's a, a climax. This is, this is the worst episode. The worst, Great. the best, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest. Best worst. I mean, really, that's that's kind Best of the, the paradox we're working with, right? Is yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the, it. The most riveting and intriguing stories are often the worst ones. So mm -hmm. it feels wrong to say that they're the best, but they kind of are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really. Yeah. And this is one of those, I think, to co-opt a last podcast on the left phrase... A gold star episode. Gold star episode. In that it is big heavy. I, uh... <laughs> the other day, I used our phrase, the, uh... Maybe we shouldn't be having this argument. <laughs> Maybe this is a bad <laughs> argument. 
with uh, my family when we were in the garden. Yay! And it took me a minute because nobody laughed and it took me a minute. I was like, oh yeah, none of you like understand the reference, right? You're Got not it. listening to my podcast actively. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Clearly we so. need to put that on a shirt. <laughs> yeah, that I really think. that broke the camel's back. Yeah. I yep. think I posted about that and Anne actually, one of my friends, she's definitely a regular listener. She's really supportive. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> but I posted the the meme that broke the camel's back on Instagram, and she was like, I want a sticker of this. Okay, thanks, please. Bye. Okay, <laughs> thanks, please. <laughs> Great. So, I, yeah. You're the one with the I print usually... shop lady, so hit her up. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Let's get back to white supremacists. White supremacists. Love those guys. Oh, yeah. So this is this is our big climax episode. It's the big oof. Maybe I'm just being, like, supremely immature, but, again, I think that it's warranted. Uh, I just really like using the big oof in reference to a pretty shitty climax. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is simultaneously a big climax and a pretty shitty climax. Right. That's why I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Because I'm 12. Hey. So, like, big, big, big up top. Mm-hmm. But I recently learned the phrase, the uh, Batter-Meinhof phenomenon. Okay. Which is, it's when the thing you just noticed, experienced, or been told about suddenly crops up constantly. Okay, so it's like a psychological phenomenon. Yeah, which is a thing okay. we talked about a ton in other episodes. Right, it's kind of like... Uh... Not manifest destiny shit. Why can't I think of what it is? Deja Attracting Deja. what you're afraid of. Or oh, yeah, the, yeah. That too. The, yeah. Which we've the... been talking about a ton in the last couple mm-hmm. of episodes. Because damn, homie, it, it is it is a manifestation of your fears, I guess. Mm-hmm. A manifestation. Yeah. Like, you... What's the fra- what's the phrase for that, though? There is a phrase that we've used several times, and I'm just completely blanking on it, and it's very frustrating. Oh, um... Oh, shit fuck yeah it's like the secret but for bad shit (laughs) (laughs) i'm actually pretty sure that last podcast on the left used that to describe i think waco (laughs) it's like the secret but you know bad (laughs) bad (laughs) i mean that's pretty much what it is all right so batter meinhof yeah batter meinhof is okay now i'm looking in um Self-fulfilling prophecy! Jesus Christ, yes. So, so this is the story of Timothy McVeigh and Oklahoma City. All right, bring it. So, I kind of want to up top this with... <sighs> these kinds of things are, are really hard. Because if you're trying to be victim-oriented, but the victims are in the triple digits, what do you do? Right. And like, you mean in regards to like previous shows when we've kind of tried to focus more on the victim and their story and not glorifying the perpetrator, but sort of just stating the facts. And in this case, since there's 300 victims, how do you do that? I I don't know. I don't I don't. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Can you? I mean, at that point, it becomes... I mean, I'm, I'm going to try to dip into some victim stories in this. And that's kind of what makes it so heavy. Mm-hmm. 
because honestly, this would just be like a weird, interesting story if I didn't victim dip. Anyway, tell me about Mr. McVeigh. All right. Yeah, let's let's like actually get into the story. <laughs> so we're going to start with some more white supremacist bullshit. Okay, great. We've been over this, uh, you know, a few times in the last couple of episodes, so we don't have to spend forever on it. But it's it's still important to this story. And there's a little bit more that I need to pad this with. Right. It seems like there are multiple uh sects or types or varieties of white supremacist groups that continue to pop up and each slight variation is important to each story yes and and honestly like some some old uh favorites that's not the word i'm looking for but you know people that we've brought up before regulars regulars some regulars we've got some regular white supremacists (laughs) <laughs> makes it sound like we work at the most fucked up coffee shop on the oh planet. Oh my god, this is the worst coffee shop. <laughs> <sighs> so we're going to start with CSA, which okay. is short for the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. Well, damn. Yeah. They fancy themselves, don't they? They fancy themselves. I think it's another Christian identity thing. Oh yeah, it's totally, I mean, instantly that imagery definitely makes you think of the Crusades and mm-hmm. Knights Templar and all this valiant battle for the Christian right. Yeah. And like big nerd, also Christian stuff is so white supremacist. Holy shit. But like big, I, bad, scary I, nerd. Yeah. That's something that's, that uh, comes up repeatedly. And it's so shocking, both in regards to like white supremacists and flat earthers and all this thing. So it's mm-hmm. like, there's some really notably educated people or people who demonstrate themselves to have the capacity to learn and be intelligent who do very stupid, very hateful things. Oh, oh it comes up over and over again. And it's so, I, that's so antithetical to what you and I seem to always learn growing up as far as like you learn more and you hate less. Yeah. How do these people manage to learn more and hate more? I don't know. Because the thing is, I still believe that. I still believe that like you go and you learn about people and you hate them less but for some people, it just solidifies your beliefs. I yeah. don't know. I don't know how it works. I think the difference is people, you know, broadening their scope of education versus uh, deepening it, right? If you deepen your education into your own rhetoric, I, you're going to build more of an understanding and seem more intelligent, but you're still just deepening your own hatred. Right. And I also wonder how much of it is like a weird arrogance of like just assuming you're right. And therefore right. looking for the things that make you right. Right. Or just, you know, like you get literary analysts who just, it's kind of like that where you can talk about something intellectually if you have the right vocabulary, but it doesn't actually mean you're smart. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean you understand the real world or the larger picture. Right. Well, I mean, Any like, better than somebody with half your vocabulary. Who's William Luther Pierce wrote the Turner Diaries. Mm-hmm. Which which we brought up in the order, we brought up in Ruby Ridge, we're bringing up again today. He was a physicist. He had a PhD. Smart dude. Motherfucker. Right, I guess at a certain point too, though, you're smart enough that if you become su- uh, sufficiently disillusioned or delusioned, <laughs> then you're intelligent enough to support your position. Yeah. And make I mean, it appear like a logical argument. Yeah, it's the same pseudoscience that that you have with white supremacists now where they believe that like they have scientific proof that 
white people are smarter than black people, but Asian people mm-hmm. are smarter than white people. And so they're right. not racist because they're just being Because benevolent real. racism isn't racism. Yeah, even though it's like, no, you dumbass, your data is bad. <laughs> your data, your studies are racist. Your studies are racist and your data is bad. So, so you've got so the CAA, CSA. CSA. Yeah. And the covenant, forms, the sword, and the arm of the Lord. Oh, yes. Hardcore. <laughs> they're formed in 1971 and they're disbanded in 1985. And the disbanding was done through Operation Clean Sweep, which we've talked about before. Okay. Through the order. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. the order's terrorist attacks is the reason for Operation Clean Sweep. Okay, yeah. And so that's how CSA is disbanded. And it was actually like a relatively peaceful. Like, there was, I think, a bit of a shootout, but then uh, it was negotiated. Yeah. And, and nobody died. Well, that's nice. And CSA was founded by James Ellison. Now, James Ellison ties into all of this because he was mentored by Richard Butler, who is the founder of Aryan Nations, who we have talked about a mm-hmm. million times. Damn it, Butler. Damn it, Butler. And he was spiritually advised by Robert G. Millar of Elohim City. Now, we'll get back into Elohim City in a little bit. Also, military leader, quote unquote, Randall Rader left the CSA to join the order. And why do we, uh, why are we, why, why is it, quote, military leader? Like, he was he the can... military leader of the CSA, ah. which is a paramilitary group. But I mean, he wasn't military leader in the, like, U.S. military. He was military leader in a paramilitary white supremacist compound. And, like, he'd run tactical drills with people. Mm-hmm. that sort of shit and you know they yeah. had a bajillion guns it was it was a paramilitary group but yeah i don't know what it really was and then he leaves and joins the order so okay. paramilitary stuff but i don't know his real military experience so after a short stint in prison james ellison who's the founder of csa mm-hmm. moves to elohim city okay where robert millar started his weird little white supremacist compound so CSA published a manifesto, ATTACK, which is Aryan Tactical Treaty for the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom, declaring war on the U.S. government. Okay, then. It's a thing. They, they ran military drills and were mainly a white supremacist or white nationalist survivalist and paramilitary group, which I've kind of gone over with you. Mm-hmm. CSA is most notable for the connections to other white nationalist terrorists and terrorist groups. So, like, they themselves created some shitty people, but they themselves mm-hmm. were not the people responsible for the shitty things, technically. Technically. Yeah. Right. It's interesting that they were that uh, openly anti-government and a paramilitary group, and that it, it seems like you're suggesting that they themselves never really committed any major acts of terrorism. I don't think that they themselves committed any major acts of terrorism. I think that they created terrorists. Right. They trained the people who went and later joined organ- other organizations and committed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's yeah. interesting. And I, I mean, like, that's kind of where you get back into, like, the sedition trials, which mm-hmm. we've talked about, where, you know, a bunch of these people from Aryan Nations, the Order, the CSA, were tried for basically attempting to incite a race war, but they, it fell through. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually, I think that that falling through is the reason that 
we only have the three people convicted for the Oklahoma City bombing as opposed Mm -hmm. to a ton of white supremacists. Right, which is probably how it should have been. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard because, like, the sedition trials failed because you had white supremacists flipping on each other and it wasn't particularly reliable. And also, you're allowed to have shitty opinions. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. That's the whole, that's the problem, right? It's difficult. Freedom of speech, freedom of thought. Complicated. Oh no. All right, everybody drink. <laughs> but so so CSA's most notable connection is is Richard Wayne Snell. So he was involved in the CSA and attempted a bombing of a natural gas pipeline. So they did attempt some terrorist acts. But this one in particular failed. A natural gas pipeline, huh? Mm-hmm. Basically, it was in the middle of winter, so they figured that they would incite race riots because they cut off their access to gas. Right, take away the resources and people will turn on each other. Yeah, but it, it okay. didn't, they weren't able to blow it up and it was just a failed thing. Interesting. And then it is believed that Snell had previously staked out the Alfred P. Murrah building as a potential bombing target. Then autonomously... Snell goes on a killing spree in 1984. So not backed by any organization, just on a racist, let's go kill people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first he murders pawn shop owner William Stump. What'd Willie Stump do? Well, he mistakenly believed he was Jewish. Okay. Which like, A, don't kill people anyway, but also you fucking idiot. And then... During a traffic stop, he murders black Arkansas police officer Lewis P. Bryant. Uh, which is sorry, Lewis. some bullshit. A witness who saw the murder of Officer Bryant followed Snell in his truck and was able to get police to arrest him that same day. Well, awesome bystander. Go you. Right? Fuck yeah. Um, okay, this is gonna bother me a little bit. So Snell was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Officer Bryant and to death for the murder of William Stump. Does that seem kind of fucked up to you? I don't know. I hope that it wasn't racism. Kelly, I I brought this up to Kelly and he was like, maybe it's because an officer is better, like, is better equipped to defend themselves. But that said, usually... When an officer dies, you fucking People go take that. for that guy, you know? Yeah, usually that's taken. No, I mean, and it's Arkansas, so it's you like You could be sentenced to de- You could be sentenced to death multiple times, right? Yeah. Like there's no legal reason why he couldn't have been death for both. So I just think that that's Ted Bundy to me got that, death for a multiple people. Right. So to me that just speaks of weird like institutionalized racism where you're like, "Well, yeah. So had he only killed the officer, he wouldn't be dying?" Yeah. So I it's what know. that's saying. That's what that's saying. Yeah. And maybe maybe the implication is that because he... Like, there's a lot of reasons why this might not be capital punishment. Like, it's entirely possible that... Maybe because it's not premeditated. Yeah. Because it was during a traffic stop, it was like a crime of opportunity versus killing a pawn shop owner because he thinks he's Jewish is definitely a premeditated. Mm-hmm. Okay, that and, might Like, there's the a difference. couple of reasons why it might be... This is capital punishment. This isn't. That isn't racism. But I'm always, especially in stories like this, I'm always like, oh, that sounds a little bit like racism. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I think that I honestly think what the most likely scenario is, is somewhere in the middle, which is not yeah. that like people is. were directly trying to make inherently racist legal calls so much as 
I'm sure that the calls they did make and their logic was heavily colored by eh. racist. Po- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> By racist politics. Yes, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. Uh, he's he's life in prison for, for the officer and murder, or sorry, death. That murder. was Freudian. <laughs> for, for the punishment. We all know how Alex feels about capital punishment. I don't like it. But that said, usually these stories, I'm like, I still don't like it, but... Yeah, I'm not a fan of capital punishment, but I'm not crying over these white supremacists. Yep. So, oh yeah, also, after the fact, Snell was possibly maybe, sort of, maybe tied to the murder of a gun store owner in 1981. So, he might be a racist serial killer. Which, fun fact, is our lesser-known serial killer in Utah. Really? Who's that? Ah, fuck. Joseph Paul Franklin. Yeah. yeah. He murdered, I think, like, some joggers in Liberty Park. Mm. Our most famous serial killer is Ted Bundy. Yeah, I figured that. that dude is our, you know, lesser known ugly cousin who ugly cousin. literally the racist serial killer. Great. So, yeah, Snell might be a racist serial killer. Yeah, fuck you, Snell. Fuck you, Snell. So, anyway... Uh, Snell was executed by lethal injection April 19th, 1995. Keep that date. April 19th, 1995. Okay. Yeah. So he was executed in Arkansas and his remains were buried in Elohim City. So now let's get to Elohim City. Yeah, tell me about Elohim. So Elohim City is a Christian identity compound. Okay, figured that. Yeah. It basically allowed anyone in that was white. Mm-hmm. That was their thing. And Robert Miller, you're white and who, Christian, come on mm-hmm. in. And and basically, he would just sort of close his eyes and cover his ears and anything illegal that may or may not be happening. Right. Okay. Which right. made it so that Elohim City has direct ties to terrorists. Uh, yeah. Because you know, because there's no regulation. Yeah, if it's literally like a safe ground for white supremacists to be terrorists. It's a place to go. So yeah. so members of the ARA are directly tied in to Elohim City. Okay. The ARA is the Aryan Republican Army, which was also coined the Midwest Bank Robbers. Because they robbed banks? Because they robbed banks, yeah. They're a white supremacist terrorist group. They robbed at least 22 banks between 1994 and 1996 in the name of funding white supremacy stuffs. Great. Now, the reason this ties back okay. is because Timothy McVeigh telephoned Elohim City two weeks prior to the bombing, and he was a known associate to Elohim City through their security director, Andrea Strassmeyer. So what does this mean? I'm confused. The reason that's important is because the official story is that Timothy McVeigh, by himself, bombed the Oklahoma City building. Right. Which, okay, so it's not looking like this because he's communicating back and forth with Elohim City up to and around the bombing. Yeah. Okay, now, that makes sense. I do not have the capacity to go into every conspiracy theory that there is around this story. But I would not be the least bit surprised if Timothy McVeigh was at least vaguely helped by some of these white supremacist terrorist cells 
And then in the name of doing his, you know, military-esque duty, stayed mum when he got arrested. Right. That would make a lot more sense than somebody acting completely independently in such a really community-based kind of belief system, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're a white nationalist or white supremacist or Christian identity or whatever, isn't part of your, I mean, I guess outside of Ruby Ridge, isn't part of your shtick banding together with those people and joining in on a cause? Because they all kind of don't trust each other as well. That's a big survival movement thing. Like, survivalists don't trust each other. But they do, like, rotate together. It's very weird. That sounds incredibly volatile. It's super volatile. That's why we get terrorists. Small, (laughs) small sects of armed nut jobs not trusting each other but working together. Yeah. It's like, it's like an orb of curdled milk. Ew. They're all together, but they're not together, but they're all together. But it's not good. It's not good. (laughs) So, so that's my white supremacy intro. It'll come up again because duh. But, but that's, you know, the, the important characters, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So let's get to Timothy McVeigh finally. Yes, finally. A thousand years in. (laughs) So Timothy James McVeigh is born April 23rd, 1968. So he's born in Lockport, New York to Mickey, which is short for Mildred, and William McVeigh. Mickey McVeigh? Mickey McVeigh. How cute. Yeah. Too bad their son turned out to be shit. Right. He had one older and one younger sister. McVeigh was raised in upstate New York, a suburb in Pendleton, Buffalo. Okay. He always wanted to be the hero when playing with other kids. Well, yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, was it Bruce Pierce or David Lane who wanted to play the Nazi? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, okay, you're right. Some kids do. He always wanted to play the hero. Yeah. And he was a big, big, big nerd. He was a huge fan of Star Wars, huge fan of Star Trek. And that actually continues through his life as, like, a thing that he compares his terrorism to. The Enterprise? The Death Star. (laughs) Yeah. I want to punch him in his face. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Like... Timothy F- McVeigh should have been given more wedgies than he was. <laughs> Alex, I, you're, it's amazing how these uh, white supremacists make you take pro-bullying stance. I am, I am pro-bullying just Timothy McVeigh. <laughs> just Timothy McVeigh. <laughs> Sometimes the bullies are right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell your kid that they come home from school. I've been being picked on. You've been being an asshole. <laughs> so he identified something fierce with Luke Skywalker. Right? Okay. And amusingly enough, from a very young age he took a firm stance against bullying. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you said he compared himself to Luke Skywalker, I was like, does that mean he wants to bone his sister? I mean, probably. <laughs> <laughs> That was definitely a joke that was made on last podcast on the left. Oh, yeah, great. Sister fucking. (laughs) And just like Luke Skywalker, he too wanted to fuck his sister. (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, okay, so the thing is, blah, 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 anti-bullying. Because he was tall and thin, he'd get called Noodle McVeigh. Okay. And I have written poor baby. Like, that was the extent. (laughs) I think one time he got punched in the face, 
Another time, some kids attempted to give him a swirly, right. but didn't actually manage to give him a swirly. Jeez, Noodle McVeigh, that sounds like a nickname that someone in our friend group would get, like, Jesus right? Christ. Yeah. Oh, how could they be so insensitive to your long, scrawny arms? <laughs> Eat a sandwich. Eat a sandwich. I mean, I've been called pizza face since second grade. So, right. Like, eat a pile of dicks. I'm not bombing things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Grow up. Everybody gets bullied. That does not. Ugh. Fuck ugh. off. Fuck off, you entire pile of fucks. Fuck off, noodle arms. Noodle arms. <laughs> so yeah, the bullying Ooh. thing comes up again, and I and I kind of wonder if it comes up again, again, in like mm-hmm. the way that we've started seeing like terrorists if they're mm-hmm. white only if they're white as bullying victims yeah you know right well i think i do i wonder about that i think that's true i think that i think that middle class i don't know why but I, it, middle class white men are surprisingly effective at getting sympathy for being butthurt yeah and to be perfectly honest a lot of times they're barely bullied yeah a lot of times they're the bully Right. Well, I think that's the thing is that whole, uh, again, people talk about the snowflake, you know, the, the mm-hmm. millennials and snowflakes and this and that. And it's like, well, I, if you can name somebody or if you can name a group that's had more entitlement shoved down their throat and mm-hmm. more, like more emotional and material entitlement and in, like this sense of, you know, you're the best, you're chosen, you're you know, you're going to be great. You're perfect. Who has experienced that more than uh, middle and upper class white men? Yeah. Really? And uh, yeah. Uh, it's no surprise that, you know, not only growing up in that, but growing up in a multi-generational cycle of that. Mm-hmm. No wonder you'd be really sensitive to being called noodle. Oh, you poor baby. It's so hard when you are promised everything and you're given everything, but somebody's mean to you. Mm. Asshole. Poor baby. <laughs> yeah. All right. So tell me more about Noodle McVeigh. <laughs> Noodle McVeigh. So his parents divorced when he's 10, and Timothy went to live with his dad. At this time, he gets real close to Grandpa Ed McVeigh, okay. who gets him into guns and survivalism, and he taught him how to shoot and care for his guns and about gun owner rights. And that's kind of, like the gun thing mm-hmm. is a thing forever. Okay. He really likes guns. And after graduating high school in 1986, he continues subscribing or he starts subscribing to guns and ammo magazines and survivalist a- magazines. Uh-huh. And then I wrote, heh, pun. Because <laughs> magazines. <laughs> yeah. I'm a dumbass. Yep. Anyway. <laughs> So the backs of the magazines, you know, you've got the, the guns and ammos, blah, 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 you mm-hmm. go through and it's like, ah, the second bit of rights, I want to buy Right, and then there's like personal ads or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the back of the magazines contain ads for these weird right-wingy books about like, you know, mo- most of them are just like weird survivalist novels. Yeah. That McVeigh would buy and read. Like Kelly's Boss actually has mm-hmm. written one of these books that's like a the post-apocalypse dystopian blah 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 and oh, the character dear. arc the the character arc is he finds a gun yeah like a shittier you know? version of like the road yeah it's just <laughs> like 
that and and you know that's the kind of stuff that's in the back of these in the of these magazines one of the books was the turner diaries Mm. and in the turner diaries mcveigh finds something of a bible he gets of course he does real into the turner diaries and quick aside you know we've gone over the turner diaries before and i don't want to dwell on it for too long but in the turner diaries the the climax of the book is blowing up an fbi building in washington dc using a truck bomb okay gee hmm fucking william luther pierce did you write a fucking manuscript for how to terrorist for how to terrorist you mean a manual is that what you fucking did you cunt (laughs) so let's get to the army the army the army so McVeigh kind of putters around at mediocre jobs for a couple years after high school. Mostly he's working at Burger King. Noodle at Burger King. Noodle at Burger King. And he starts attending business school for a short time, but he drops out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And he's not really going anywhere career-wise. And he loves guns. So he joins the army. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. Ta-da! Which actually was a really good decision for him, all things considered. The the structure was good for him, and he was actually an excellent soldier. Interesting. However, I've also heard stories that his racist beliefs carried into his military career. Well, of course it did. Yeah. So how could like, it not? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And like, I've got I've got a picture of his platoon. Oh, look, that is. Yep. And, you know, you can see that there's a couple of not just white people in that. Oh, he does look like a noodle. (laughs) He's tall and lanky. That is for sure. So, I mean, so, so what I've heard is that he would assign the shittiest tasks to the black personnel under his command. And then the less shitty jobs to the white guys. Right. Of course. That makes total sense. That's like, that's institutionalized racism, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. He gets the opportunity to racism. Mm hmm. Also, in basic training, McVeigh meets the only other two people who will be officially implicated in the later terrorist attack. Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier. Fortier. Is that Fortier? I think it's Fortier. I've always heard it pronounced Fortier. It's probably Fortier, but he pronounces it Fortier because shitty white people stuff. Well, I was gonna say, then that's correct. However he pronounces it is correct. Yeah. I guess. But, like, he's wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So... Basically, these two dudes were also way into the Turner Diaries, so they bonded grossly. Right, and this, I think this is, you're right, this is leading in perfectly to- About the shitty military folks? Well, just the reciprocal cycle of the military and poor white men, not like poor me, but like, you know, economically disenfranchised white men and white supremacy. It's like, they're just as perfect. They call to each other. There's a lot of positive reasons that people join the military, and I do believe the military is capable of doing positive things, despite however fucked up things are right now. But yeah, I just think there there is a cycle worth noting in regards to white men with anger ending up in military service. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, and in, in that picture I have, you've got McVeigh and Fortier and Nichols mm-hmm. that I've got pointed out. Yeah. Now... Terry Nichols also came from a broken home and before joining the army had been a stay-at-home dad. Mm-hmm. 
Now, apparently he hadn't talked joining the army over with his wife because he got a hardship discharge in 1989 when his wife filed for divorce. Oops. (laughs) And Fortier was mainly just a burnout stoner and meth head. Oh. You know, the best kind of white supremacists. I just... Exactly what I expect. Hmm, yes. (laughs) Yep. So, McVeigh actually starts special forces training, but is interrupted by the start of the Gulf War. Oh. Which we've already talked about twice with conspiracy theorists shitting their pants over the Gulf War. Mm Mm-hmm. And it, it comes up again. Shit your pants time. Shit your pants time. But we don't need to go over it because we've already talked about it a bunch. Like a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So McVeigh gets deployed to Iraq. And around this time, he starts getting disillusioned with the U.S. government. He starts seeing his enemies as fellow human beings. And he starts seeing the U.S. as the world's biggest bully. I mean, I can see... I don't necessarily disagree. I I disagree with where he went from here. Right. I was going to say, all of that seems totally valid, especially if you're experiencing war in the Middle East firsthand. Yeah. And and, and the Gulf War was really brutal. Like, I mean, A, war, duh. But also, like, the Iraqis were not terribly well prepared for a U.S. invasion. Yeah. And so it was really gnarly in just how hard the U.S. pummeled the Iraqis. Yeah. You know? And, And it was really brutal. However, there's an official and an unofficial version of this story. Okay. So, officially, McVeigh only killed two people. And it was a pretty legit sniper kill from a thousand yards away that he got a medal for. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, that was where, like, he felt bad for killing people, blah, blah, blah. Unofficially, according to fellow soldiers, McVeigh shot soldiers who were being taken prisoner. Including four soldiers who were already in custody. Which is a war crime. Yeah. Huh. And when asked about it, McVeigh's commander refused to comment. But, I mean, A, okay, yeah, if your underling is committing war crimes, hell no, you're not commenting. But B, if somebody's asking about your underling committing war crimes and they didn't, you're like, hey, fuck off. So. Yeah, I think it's kind of, I think that, I mean, whatever, that's a really easy place to start chomping at the bit for conspiracy theories, right? But Mm -hmm. I think that it's not out of the question to think that that second scenario is is true, right? Uh, Especially during wartime. I could really, like... Yeah. At a certain yeah. point, the thing is, is whether or not it's a war crime, how much do you think people around him really cared? I don't know. Right? If I don't it's, know. I mean, especially considering the way that we... Even... Know. Well, I think even good people. Even even yeah. good people in that kind of... Uh, you're in a completely different... I just can't even imagine how different that whole environment is. Mm-hmm. And I could see how even very, very good people could turn a blind eye to straight up murder in that kind of situation. I don't know. So, I don't know. Either way. Basically, you have you have two options, and both are pretty fucked up. The yeah. first option is McVeigh is a fucking psychopath and a war criminal. Mm-hmm. Who murdered... Who murdered detainees. Yeah, he murdered detainees. Or McVeigh thinks that enemy soldiers 
who have their guns aimed at him are more innocent and worthy of life than employees, visitors, and their children of a federal building. So both of these scenarios are pretty fucked up. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. He is just wrong all over the place. He's there just is no wrong all over the place. He does not get to be right. He doesn't get to be right. So he gets home from Iraq and he's not in nearly as good of shape. He's, you know, been fucking around in the desert for forever. So mm-hmm. he he falls into something of a post-combat depression. Mm-hmm. And the off the, the the military offers to give him extra time to get back into shape before he starts back with the special forces stuff. But he goes right ahead and starts and washes out after a few days. Because mm, of psychological issues. No, because he was out of shape and he thought he was badass. Okay, I didn't, I, for some reason I assumed you meant out of shape, like, uh, uh, figuratively. No. But literally, he was, like, he was out of shape. You, that's why I was confused, because you said he'd been fucking around in the desert. Like, I assumed that if you were in active duty, you would not become out of shape physically. Well, you're, it's, you're not in as good of, like, when you're in the desert, there's a lot of, like, sitting around waiting Right, you're not getting active conditioning and you're probably mm-hmm. getting pretty depleted. Whereas, like, special forces is, like, we're going to go fucking jogging forever. Yeah. But you're not going to do that when you're in active combat. You don't want to be exhausted if you're fucking shooting at Okay, people. yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So he's out of shape physically and okay, yeah. he washes out the special forces training. And then after a few months back from Iraq, he leaves the army and goes back to New York. Mm. So... This is late 1991. He hopes that he can get, like, a good job easy after the army. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, military service, blah, blah, blah. Because the lie that veterans are told is that they get preferential treatment when they get home and they don't. Yeah. And he, he... He hits his peak before the war and everything after is just mediocre. Like, in his personal life? Mm-hmm. He ends up as a graveyard security guard at the Buffalo Zoo. Oh, dear. (laughs) That's pretty mediocre, isn't it? It's impressively mediocre. Now, around this time, he starts dipping in deep to conspiracy theories. A big one is that the U.S. government is going to be taken over by the U.N. Interesting. You know, blah, 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 Gulf War, blah, 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 New World Order. Yeah. It's all of the stuff that we've talked about before. Now, let's get into some of the other awful things that kind of create the McVeigh-Molotov cocktail that we end up with. Yeah, good. Give me more of that awful. <laughs> so, Feel around like this time... tonight. Yeah, good, good. So, around this time, McVeigh signs up for a trial membership with the KKK. Hmm. Is that like if you don't like it, you can return your racism in 30 days? Like... <laughs> I mean, I think basically, I think it's a, you sign up for a year and you have to renew, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't renew because they were more committed to the cause of racism than to second amendment rights. Mm. And he said that the KKK was manipulative to young people, which is true, but but also, I don't know, man, pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, that's, that's, I, yeah, I agree. It's like, that's not an untrue statement, but it's a weird thing for him to be concerned about. Yeah. It's like, 
your favorite book is the Turner Diaries, you fucking idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about manipulating the youth. Yeah. Anyway, so McVeigh also starts hella attending gun shows on the reg. Okay. So gun shows, survivalists, white supremacists, they all congregate together. It's the Venn mm-hmm. diagram with the yeah, thick yeah, yeah. middle. So McVeigh is literally the kind of person to keep guns all over the house, even in the bathroom. Just in every room, just in case. So what if somebody just... breaks in and I'm on the can? Yeah. Yeah, he's one of those guys. Okay. So this is this is his his world. And it's not at all surprising because he's been headed down this road the whole time. Right. So shortly after leaving the military, McVeigh does attempt to seek mental health treatment. Oh, good. Get you a nice VA shrink. Well, he's too ashamed to give his name. So he doesn't go through with it. Mm, That's sad. Which is, yeah, it's really sad. He was worried that he wouldn't be able to get a job later. That's like... Because his name would be on a list somewhere saying, like, crazy fucking PTSD dude. That's... It's sad. That's a really... Well, I think that's a really humanizing fact, right? That all... Mm -hmm. That we can say all these shitty things and that he did all these... Right, like... Yeah. He did all these provably shitty things, but that there was a point in time where he was maybe seeking help. And didn't feel safe getting it. And that's really upsetting. Yeah. And I think that says a lot more about our society than it does about him. Yeah. In this situation, it is the one time where we're allowed to be like, ah, bummer, dude. (laughs) Well, especially because who, I mean, again, especially what's part of, like I said, society sort of creating our own monsters and being our own biggest problem, right? Like, Mm -hmm. who knows what would have happened had he been able to get treatment at that time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, he probably... I, I think that that was the one that was the last chance to avoid Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. You know, is him getting some kind of actual treatment and and dealing with his PTSD and dealing with his weird beliefs and trying to find trying to find a way to give his life meaning mm-hmm. that isn't I'm at war with the government. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is really sad. So, so this is kind of, I don't know, I guess funny? Yeah, well. It's something. It can be fun. So, instead of getting help for his mental health, he starts writing letters to the editor about taxes and government. Okay. And he just starts getting just deeper, 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 deeper into conspiracies. Like that the government was setting up secret concentration camps and crematoriums to get rid of the anti-government sentiment. So genocide against whom? People who People didn't that, like the government. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. It's it's the older version of FEMA death camps. Okay. Right. Yeah. Because that's a thing. Because that's definitely a thing. The government is high. It, that's the reason that Alex Jones is dead. If only. (laughs) So McVeigh and Nichols get back in touch. And Nichols just got home from the Philippines with teen mail order bride Mara Faye. Ew. Yep. So that that's a thing. And McVeigh loses a few Super Bowl bets a few years in a row and moves out west. Well, literally for a few years in a row, the most notable thing in his life was losing Super Bowl bets. Basically. Sad. There's like a couple of other things, but I, it's really not that important. So mm. I skipped over it. 
So, oh, actually, okay. So Ruby Ridge happens. Mm-hmm. And that's 1992. Ruby Ridge happens and this group, the you know, the gun shows plus, mm-hmm. gun shows, white supremacists, survivalists. Yeah. They don't identify this as a government fuck up in the light of a white of white supremacist terrorism, mm-hmm. which is what it was. It was a government fuck up. They identify this as a government attack on the right of people to own guns. Right. Deliberate. Gu- yeah. It's not even a, re- a government attack on people. It's a government attack on people's rights to own guns. Okay. Because that's definitely what they were doing. I hate this so much. <laughs> it's like, you need new priorities. Or just... God, a new way of looking at things. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure Ruby Ridge didn't happen because the government disagreed with them living, like, disagreed with them homesteading and having guns. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a thing. That's kind of an incredibly American thing to do. Yeah. Really. Technically, because the ATF was involved, because blah, 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 sawed off shotgun. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, that's it. That's the only part that's like, we're coming for your guns. The rest of it was just a weird fucked up. But weren't up. they not? Weren't they just coming for him because he had like skipped out on yeah. going to court? The thing, yeah, the thing that he really did wrong was he skipped out on court. That was what he did wrong. Right. But, you know, they didn't see that. They saw the government coming for your guns. Yeah, because of course, because they're wanting to see. What's uh, the Berker Meinhof? No. Batter Meinhof. Batter Meinhof. Yeah. Where Looking for a pattern and then seeing it everywhere? Well, and also... Or once you see self- a pattern, seeing self- it everywhere? Self-fulfilling prophecy thing. Yeah. Although, no. The government's not coming for your fucking guns. Jesus Christ. Everybody has so many guns. Yeah. The government is not coming for them. Well, and I just think that the whole, you know... The whole sentiment of, I need to have my guns because I need to maintain the right and ability... To revolt against the government if I so choose. I, I, uh, you know, to a point, I actually agree with the whole sentiment that, you know, to be truly patriotic uh, could end up meaning overthrowing an unjust government. But I also think it's really silly for anyone to think that they could possibly build an individual arsenal that would in any way stand up to the arsenal that the U.S. government has. Yeah, like, yeah. I that's, mean, that's exactly that's it. such it's a like, bullshit. Like, okay, you're delusional. Yeah. It's like a the government is not coming for your guns. America is a s- stupid gun culture. They're not coming for your guns. B. The government has drones. Yeah, like if the government has nukes. If you really want guns for the sake of fighting the U.S. government, you're kind of fucked already. So, good yeah. luck. And the last time we collected guns to attempt to fight the U.S. government, we got Waco. Which is what we're about to get into. Waco! So, less than a year after Ruby Ridge, we get Waco. So, let's pause for some more racist bullshit. Oh my god. Okay. (laughs) So, in the middle of all of this white supremacist bullshit is Lewis Beam. I don't recall if we've talked about him before. Does not ring a bell. Okay, so he was tied into the Aryan Aryan Nations and the Order and all these other racist paramilitary terrorist groups. Mm -hmm. He was the main advocate for leaderless resistance. 
Okay. Now, he didn't So right-wing anarchy? Concept. Well, the idea is that guerrilla warfare is already really hard to fight. Mm-hmm. But it's even harder to fight if there's no, so to say, head of the snake to cut off. Right. If it's literally, he's advocating for terrorist cells. Right. If there's a shared general objective and then people uh, try to meet that ends by whichever means they so choose in an unorganized fashion. Yep. That way you can't take down the leader and take down the group. So it's just a bunch of people popping up creating an overarching goal mm-hmm. okay. group. Yeah. And, oh my God, he he wrote a bunch of essays. He was part of the sedition trial. He's never actually had any repercussions because words aren't illegal, but he mm-hmm. is a bad person. Like, he was part of the KKK and was part of, like, this really, really awful, like, harassment of Vietnamese fishermen mm-hmm. that the Southern Poverty Law Center had to get cease and desists on. Oh, wow. And, like, anti-harassment, anti-stalking injunctions. So, yeah, he is a bad motherfucker. And and that was his big thing, was, was leaderless resistance. Okay. Which, I mean, is one of those things that points to maybe, maybe not Timothy McVeigh did it by himself. I don't know. I think that fits in perfectly. I might have been a little bit, you know, kind of misleading myself as far as the extent to which white supremacists want to work together. But I think that's kind of what I was circling around was this whole idea of obviously there's a shared there's a unity of purpose. Mm -hmm. Whether or not these people are truly united, there is a unity of purpose. And so the idea that any individual creating acts of terrorism for that purpose is Mm -hmm. acting completely alone. Yeah. Well, and also, I feel like when you add, like, the Christian identity white supremacy thing, they're Mm -hmm. a lot more willing to work together. Yeah. So, like, survivalists alone do not trust each other. But but you're right. There is a a group think to white supremacist, Christian Mm -hmm. identity, those survivalists. Yeah. And and so, yeah, there there is a weird groupness to them. So, Lewis Beam went to Waco during the siege and was able to get into a press conference. Oh, wow. Saying that he was there as part of the press. And he was even able to talk for a few minutes publicly about his weird racist shit before he was removed. Oh. Like, at the press conference. Which was wild. And Timothy McVeigh also went down to the Waco siege. Okay. Because remember, this is a two-month thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we don't know that Timothy McVeigh met Lewis Beam or didn't. I I really don't know. But I find it very unlikely that he didn't hear about Lewis Beam being there. He didn't care about what Lewis Beam wrote. Right. You know? I was just sort of perusing a a sort of article on Timeline about Lewis Beam. Mm. And you may have read this one. It's Armed Resistance, Lone Wolves, and and Media Messaging. Meet the Godfather of the Alt-Right. And I just think it's interesting... Since we've kind of been going back and forth on this whole, like, are they united? Are they not united? Do survivalists and white supremacists really join together in this whole idea of, you know, uh, the leaderless resistance, right? And I just, I, I want to just read you this little bit out of here because that was really interesting. In 1983, the grand dragon of the Texas Ku Klux Klan, Louis Beam, began quietly circulating an essay among white supremacist groups in America. 
Quote, those who love liberty and believe in freedom enough to fight for it are rare today, he wrote. We are a band of brothers, native to the soil, gaining strength from one another as we have rushed headlong into a battle that all the weaker, timid men say we cannot win. That's perfect. That's, I mean, yeah, he's advocating for a leaderless resistance, but that's perfect evidence right there that there's a presence within the uh, white supremacist movement of wanting to band together, mm-hmm. even if they don't trust each other. Yeah. Yeah, and there is a lot more, I don't know, It it's complicated, but like, it is very us versus them when you get into the white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if it's just, if you just take a survivalist out of everything, just a survivalist that doesn't have any weird ties, other than they're probably a little racist, mm-hmm. they don't trust anybody. I yeah. mean, see also Randy Weaver. Right. Who was technically a racist, but he was survivalist first, racist second. Right. And he didn't trust anybody. Right. And his distrust, he wasn't quite racist enough to, or trusting enough. The one couldn't win out over the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. So, so, so blah, blah, blah. When, when we got here, Timothy McVeigh had just showed up to Waco. Mm-hmm. Now, there's this hill that's about three miles from Mount Carmel. Okay. Which was the Waco compound, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was the closest the authorities would allow civilians to get to the compound. And it was kind of this weird version of the protesting barricade at Ruby Ridge. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, there were people from all sorts of walks of life there to hang out and be weird at each other. And McVeigh is 25, 24 years old. And he goes and sells pro-gun anti-government bumper stickers Mm -hmm. complete with some dashes of nazi rhetoric like uh fear the government that fears your gun Mm. and ban guns make the streets safe for a government takeover i didn't know any either of those related to nazi sentiment uh, no, they don't specifically. Okay. I, I couldn't read the one. There there was one bumper sticker that overtly had a swastika on it, but I couldn't read what was on it. Oh, unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, I'm taking these, like, from the picture of him on his car with his bumper stickers. Oh, okay. Okay. And so those were the ones that I could read easily. Fair. There was definitely one that had a swastika on it. Right. I just couldn't read it. Fair. Fair. Yeah. But, again, the Waco siege is seen by the right as an attack on gun rights. Mm-hmm. So McVeigh doesn't give a fuck about the Branch Davidians. He cares about the gun stuff. Right, obviously. Yeah. And when he leaves Waco, he heads to the Wannenmacher Tulsa World's Largest Gun Show. Mm-hmm. Where he sells copies of the Turner Diaries and other random survivalist shit. Of course. And this is when McVeigh meets Andreas Strassmeyer. Strassmeyer. He's from, he's from Elohim City. They, they do a dumb trade. Uh, I think it was his, uh, Desert Storm uniform for a knife. Okay. Yeah. And they walk the gun show together. Bonding over Waco. Oh, how cute. I know, they were on a date. (laughs) And at the end of the day, Strassmeyer gave McVeigh a card with the number and address for Elohim City. Okay. 
Then McVeigh moves to the Nichols family farm in Michigan, and shortly after, he watches the fiery end of the Waco siege live on TV. Mm-hmm. With tears in his eyes. I mean, you know, it's sad, but I don't think it he It was ever... a really fucked up thing. But also. I think that he was probably sad for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Exactly. I feel like that's a safe assumption. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was just like the thing that affirmed his already existing beliefs. Yeah. You know? Like, I think for normal people, it was also sad. Right, it as it, was it really should be. fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. It was really fucked up. There was a lot of kids in that building. But as we see later, he apparently doesn't actually give a quarter of a fuck about the lives of innocents. Mm-hmm. So, also conspiracy shit. There's this shitty documentary called Waco the Big Lie. Mm-hmm. And it's it's poorly pieced together. It's It takes, like, this bad footage from the Waco siege and you know makes this claim that it was entirely the ATF going in and burning down the Waco compound and the Branch Davidians did nothing wrong right? Right. But couldn't imagine this fire being set by anyone other than the US government. Which when you're already conspiracy minded makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because why would anybody burn themselves down? It had to have been an assault on them. Well, I think, but that's the problem if you don't understand religious fanatics. Yeah. Right. I mean, who does? Religious fanatics, that's it. Yeah. Well, I guess (laughs) I'm saying that's... Study them. That's how, I guess, the intermixing of white nationalism and survivalism and religious fanaticism, I think, Mm -hmm. makes it all that much easier to bend stories to fit your brand of mm-hmm. fanaticism yeah. uh, because you don't really understand. Like if you're coming at it from a gun owner's uh, rights perspective, you're not going to even understand the impulse that people might have brainwashed or not to uh, end their lives for religious reasons. Yeah. Well, and also you mix all of those things together, the survivalists, the white supremacists, the religious fanatics, and you get a bunch of different people that are willing to tweak the truth just a little bit to fit their overall belief of how the world works. Yeah. Yeah. A few hundred little tweaks and all of a sudden it's not real <laughs> it's world time anymore. To bomb a building with a bunch of kids in it. <sighs> so McVeigh starts selling more I mean more meme shit, really. You know, he's got the bumper sticker. Yeah. He starts selling ATF hats with bullet holes in them. Oh nice. Like they're kind of funny things, but This is where I wrote Big Oof. God, I'm a useless piece of shit. So, Big Oof, he starts handing out pictures of Lon Horiuchi with his home address. Oh, shit. Lon Horiuchi is the I remember who he is. Yeah. Yep. So, Big Oof. Ah. That's just... Ah. (laughs) I mean, okay, two things here. One, he's literally threatening... A federal agent, mm-hmm. which should have gotten him arrested. Yeah. Years before anything. But two, of the people who I would want to go and fuck with after they had been doxxed, a professional sniper is not one of them. Right. That's very <laughs> foolish. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Anyway. Then the Brader- Brady Bill gets signed into law. Okay, what is the Brady Bill? Late 1993. Now, the Brady Bill was a ban on some assault weapons, Mm -hmm. 
There's a ban on gun ownership and restrictions on possession by minors. Okay. And there was some licensing requirements and background check requirements. Okay. It was not coming for your guns. It was some fairly reasonable restrictions. Right. But, I mean, that's what we're looking at today in regards to gun reform, and it's never seen that way. Yeah. It's, it's seen, seen as, I need an automatic assault rifle to go hunt deer for my family. Mm-hmm. Or, I have a right to have this because fuck you, government. Yeah. But you don't. Yeah. And the thing is, like, it didn't even, it didn't even, it banned, like, the production of assault of new assault rifles mm-hmm. but it didn't make it like an offense to own an already existing assault rifle hmm. you know yeah like we have a the supreme court just upheld a ban on bump stocks on what bump stocks so remember the las vegas shooting mm-hmm. that is what that guy was using oh, okay he he had these does it just make it easier to change out your uh So a bump stock makes your gun almost a machine gun. Okay. It uses the recoil Mm -hmm. of the gun to make it so that you pull the trigger again on a semi-automatic, making it essentially an automatic without it actually Because the recoil pulls the trigger. An automatic. So it's just like a mechanical workaround, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which, you know, there's been gloves that have been made that essentially do that, that have been banned. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. So it's not an unreasonable ban. That said, this ban on bump stocks makes it so that owning a bump stock is illegal. Even if, like, there's no grandfather in. Okay. And so I think it's kind of cool that the Supreme Court upheld this. But considering Timothy McVeigh shat his pants and then killed a bunch of people... When we banned making more assault weapons, I'm kind of scared. Yeah. It's fine. I'm fine. It's fine. We're all fine. Everything's fine. Except for it's not fine at all. It's not fine! (laughs) Anyway, so all of these things, Ruby Ridge, Waco, the Brady Bill, all of these things just boom the militia movement. Like, the militia movement's already going, Mm -hmm. and then it's going. So, So after all of this, McVeigh decides that he has to counterattack the U.S. government. Of course. And in the Turner Diaries, the main guy blows up a federal building with a truck bomb. So that's what McVeigh's going to do. Good job, Noodle. Good job, Noodle. Aw, that makes me sad about my baby. I know. I was not (laughs) going to bring that up. I was like, hmm. (laughs) You might have to, like, change your ferret's name or I don't know. Hell nah. McVeigh is not ruining my ferret. Good. My ferret is substantially better than McVeigh. <laughs> substantially. Way better creature. <laughs> way better. In every way. So blah, blah, blah. He's going to blow up a building. Mm-hmm. He recruits his old army buddies to help. Mm-hmm. In February 1994, McVeigh goes back to visit Fortier. And they start ex- experimenting making pipe bombs. But they don't turn out great. They try to blow up a rock and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason that people are like, did he really build this really effective bomb all by himself in a year? Yeah. They went from not being able to blow up rocks to building a really good bomb. Yeah. And basically, I think, I think, I think he had help. 
Well, it sounds like it sounds had- like there's not enough evidence to directly connect him to any kind of like co-conspirators, but that like I, I feel like a white supremacist circle would be the perfect place to like acquire knowledge about how to build a pipe bomb. Yeah, like I mean, they maybe- pass that shit. I, Aryan nations literally passes that shit out in pamphlet form, right? So that's, I can think kind of what I'm getting at is I think that definitely people shouldn't. I don't know, sedition charges are weird, but. Uh, distributing information about how to make a bomb is pretty shitty. Like, that's that can't be happening. Well, you're not allowed to... You're not allowed to plan murder. Yeah. Planning... (laughs) Freedom of speech does not cover planning a murder. Yeah. I think he helped... I I think he was helped planning his murder. Right. You know? Okay, And I I I think that he was kind of like the perfect guy, because he was a clean-cut... Army veteran, military veteran, mm-hmm. who had no criminal history, unlike most of the jackasses that you find in white supremacy circles. Right. Who constantly are getting popped for assault and petty crimes. Mm-hmm. So it just, it makes sense that McVeigh was helped. Right. I don't know how much, but I doubt it was just... Terry Nichols helping him grab some shit together and Fortier providing emotional stability. Yeah. And then McVeigh, through the Turner Diaries, building a several ton truck bomb that killed over, you know, a hundred people. Yeah, no, not gonna happen. So anyway... They, mainly McVeigh, but also a bit Nichols, start collecting fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Ammonium nitrate. Yep. Because truck bomb. And, you know, they're buying as many bags as they can. They're stealing fertilizer. They're also stealing material to make the bomb. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, like, the material materials were stolen from a quarry. And McVeigh starts using a storage locker that Nichols had planned to use to store furniture. Hmm. McVeigh uses it to store bomb material. Basically, <laughs> Nichols is the most rollover person I have ever heard. Super ever. passive bitch. Oh, he is a doormat. Mm-hmm. And and it's fine. He's a doormat that should be walked on. <laughs> but not if it means making a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so at this point, they rob Roger Moore, who... He would have come up in this story if I wanted to tell a deeper story, but mm-hmm. he was a gun shop owner that McVeigh had met at the gun show scene. Okay. And this kind of feeds into conspiracy theories. There's some people who think that Robert Roger Moore knew, and and there's some people who... Like, maybe he wasn't really robbed or reported it that way? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, I mentioned the, the ARA at the very top of the episode... Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who think that maybe McVeigh was part of that bank robbing. Oh, really? Because that might have helped him fund the operation. That would make sense. You got to get money. He was traveling a ton. And he was a known associate of these white supremacists. You know, it's not impossible. Yeah. So, you know, they rob Roger Moore. And Nichols starts feeling like it's getting too hot. So he takes off to the Philippines for a while with Marafay. Mm-hmm. 
And so McVeigh goes back to Fortier. And he shows the bombing plans to Fortier and his wife Lori using soup cans as a visual aid. Oh, how cute. Because barrels in a truck. Yep. And all the while, McVeigh is traveling the country from militia compounds to the Waco site Mm -hmm. to just everywhere. You know, he's trying to get the real American everything. And also, he's scoping out buildings for the perfect target. Mm Mm-hmm. He ultimately settles on the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City because they have an ATF office and McVeigh specifically wanted a large and brutal body count and the Murrah building could house thousands inside at one time. Mm. I mean, the Murrah building had 550 employees and a lot of the government offices were visit us kind of government offices. The Social Security Administration... Right. Not just the kind where they're behind closed doors during paperwork, but the kind where people regularly come in for, like, important shit. Yeah. I mean, it it had the ATF, which, you know, blah, 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 Waco, right? Mm -hmm. But it also had the Secret Service, the DAA, the Social Security, Housing Development, Veteran Affairs, Army Recruiting, just a fuckload. Oh, and a daycare. And a daycare. That's great. Second floor. The entire second floor was a daycare. Oh. Yeah. That's ghastly. Yeah. No. McVeigh is a monster. I Did I talk to you about how I wish that I swore less because I can't come up with a good enough offensive thing to say about McVeigh? No, you didn't tell me that, but I can see... Yeah, you're kind of... You're out of slurs, aren't you? I'm out of slurs. Because fuck doesn't offend me. But if fuck still offended me, I would call McVeigh a fuck. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, yeah, big time monster. And McVeigh, as far as innocent visitors go, McVeigh compared them to employees on the Death Star. Right. Like, they're just, uh... uh... Even though they weren't the evil empire, they were still working for the empire, which makes them complicit. And McVeigh is once again... Being Luke Skywalker. Right, of course. Because he's an evil nerd. Evil, evil nerd. And likely, Timothy McVeigh also chose the Murrah building because there lacks security. Oh. They only had one guard on duty at a time. And the building was totally unguarded for at least five hours a day. Okay. Did he strike during those five hours? No, mm. no, because that was probably when the building was closed. Oh, right. McVeigh could have just blown up a federal building, but he wanted a body count. Mm. Now, he probably didn't know this, but the security cameras at the Murrah building were not taking footage. Ugh. And something he almost certainly didn't know, but definitely would be advantageous to him, is that the columns of the Murrah building were reinforced with rebar. Now, they could have been reinforced with hoop still. And the columns would have been more sturdy. Mm -hmm. But that was an earthquake-proofing thing. And since earthquakes were uncommon in Oklahoma, they cut a corner here, saving about $18,000, which is one-eighth of 1% of the construction budget. So, nothing. That will come up later. And you will be so mad. Oh, and obviously, they decide on the date being April 19th. Oh, right. Because Waco. Because Waco. But also, because Patriot's Day 
which is the anniversary of the start of the American Revolution, which is a, a classic patriot movement thing. Right. I'm a patriot because I'm overthrowing the government. Patriot's Day. Mm-hmm. Waco. Oh, my God. And uh, April 19th, 95. Hmm. That's the date you told me to remember, isn't it? Yeah. That's the day of Richard Wayne Snell's ex- execution, <sighs> which, again, kind of makes you think maybe he had some ties with these white supremacist movements. Right. That's too much lining up all at once to not be connected, yeah. I feel like. It I just... just... Well, I mean, don't you think, though, it's one of those things where it's like official reports have to say there is no connection if they can't prove a connection? Yeah. I mean, if you can't prove it... I think that's what it is. Because... McVeigh didn't have to do April 19th, 1995. He Mm-mm. could have done April 19th, 1996 or 1994. Yeah. But he did 1995, which was the day yeah. that Richard Wayne Snell was executed. Mm-hmm. April 19th would have always been the Waco anniversary. Right. But choosing to do it on that same day, it feels like a message. It feels like a message. Now, this is an unofficial story. Okay. Like, McVeigh denies this, and the government says that it didn't happen. But he was seen in December 1994, so shortly before the bombing. Mm-hmm. McVeigh and Fortier go to the Murrah building. And McVeigh has denied this, but... So so McVeigh and Fortier go to the Murrah building. And McVeigh talked to a daycare worker about the layout of the daycare center. Oh... And that sounds like he's intentionally murdering babies. It does. Because a lot of people will freak the fuck out if you intentionally murder babies, which is what he wanted. He wanted a lot of people to care. And she said that he kept commenting on all of the glass. Because mm. there was so many windows. Yeah. So it's not official story, but he was seen. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you're right. I don't like it. Yeah. I 100% think that he knew that there was a daycare. I mean, not only had he scoped the building out. Well, how could you not know? I'm sure it's listed on the building, like, the the directory what in the front. Have. Yeah. If yeah. He's, like, you don't, if in the process of finding out that there was an ATF there, he would have had to have found out that there was, I mean, what do you do? You go yeah. up or down the list and you're like, well, it's here. There's no way he didn't know. Yeah. Like, did yeah. he claim later to not know there was a daycare there? He basically said uh, that it wouldn't have mattered. He didn't know, but it wouldn't have mattered. Like, I would have done it. Yeah. I'm not taking responsibility for that, but yeah, I would have done it anyway. Yeah. Fucker. They were collateral damage. He's such an evil cunt. So, they've been working on the bomb for a while. And it's a few days before the bombing. You know, the the set date. Mm -hmm. So, it's time to get everything together. Terry Nichols and Timothy McVeigh drive separately from Kansas to Oklahoma City so that McVeigh can drop off the getaway car. Okay. Which is a $300 pastel yellow 1977 Mercury Grand Marquis. Mm, Crazy about a Mercury. Oh my god, it is the ugliest fucking thing. I think I posted a picture. That yellow thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's hideous. Love it. It's such an ugly color. Oh god. (laughs) <laughs> i'm into it it's so, kind of classic like a caddy i mean you would like it but also i was ugh. i was i was kind of joking oh, okay uh. <laughs> uh-huh 
Mostly so he leaves a note on the windshield. He, oh my god, this is the most like white people. I'm sorry we exist. <laughs> anyway, he leaves a note on the windshield that reads, "Not abandoned. Please do not tow. Will move by April 23rd. Needs battery and cable." And he just fucking leaves it on the street. That's not. That's so impressive that like that worked. Yeah. So yeah, then you know they drop off the car. They leave that note. They drive back to Kansas. Then. Uh, Timothy McVeigh goes to Junction City to rent the infamous yellow rider truck. Mm-hmm. April 18th is bomb assembly day. Allegedly, Nichols is starting to get cold feet, but McVeigh threatens him and his family if he doesn't help complete the bomb assembly. Oh, well, okay. I mean, that said, Nichols is the most, like, rollover... Anyway. Yeah, you don't... Man. Yeah. Deserves to be walked on. Nichols doesn't accompany him any further, and McVeigh drives to Oklahoma alone. Maybe. Maybe. All right. We're to the day. Lay it on me. This is... This is the Gold Star area. April 19th, 1995. The Alfred P. building, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. McVeigh wears his special favorite t-shirt for this extra special occasion. It's a shirt that on the front has a picture of Lincoln with the words Six Semper Tyrannis. Yeah, okay, great. Meaning thus always to tyrants, which is what John Wilkes Booth shouted when he shot Lincoln in the head. Right. And on the back, it has a tree and a Thomas Jefferson quote. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Damn. So it's his... I'm a go white supremacy terrorist shirt. And approximately 8.57 a.m., Timothy McVeigh drives the 3.5 ton truck bomb to the north side of the Murrah building, just below the daycare center. If he had looked up, he could see the children's drawings in the windows. A hundred percent he fucking knew there was a daycare center there. That's so upsetting. He lights two fuses and calmly walks away, only jogging once he reached an alley behind the YMCA. Mm. One witness, Randy Norfleet, assumed he may have been army checking into the command, but was confused by his behavior. Let's get the fucking douchey brush cut. A douchey brush cut. (laughs) Now, inside the building. Dana Bradley is the worst story. So Dana Bradley was a young woman in 1995. She had two beautiful children, a three-year-old daughter named Peach Lynn and a three-month-old son named Gabrion. She was going to the social security office located on the first floor of the Murrah building to get a new social security card for her infant son. Mm -hmm. Around 8 a.m., Dana Bradley entered the Murrah building with her children, her mother, Cheryl Hammond, and her sister, Felicia Bradley. There was already a line. Dana filled out paperwork while her mother held her place in line. They noticed the yellow rider truck pull up to the building. Dana noticed how strange it it was. Also at the Social Security office that day were LaRue and Luther Treanor, and their granddaughter, four-year-old Ashley Megan Eccles. Luther was about to retire, and they had an appointment that day to check on his Social Security retirement. Mm. 
Just above these two families was America's Kids Child Care Development Center, taking up the entire second floor. The daycare center had 21 children and three teachers inside at the time of the bombing. By the windows sat four cribs. The babies and pedestrians both liked to look at each other, and with the cribs by the windows, the babies could try to catch the sunbeams. Which is adorable, and as it should be in a daycare center. As it should be. The fourth floor housed the Army Recruitment Office. Sergeant William E. Titsworth had just been assigned to the office and was taking his wife Gloria and daughters Katie, who was five, and Kayla, who was three, to visit his new office. Mm. There are so many extra babies there. There's so many extra babies. In Midwest City, Oklahoma, off-duty nurse Rebecca Anderson was at home with her husband, Fred. They had been married for nine months. So the bomb goes off at 9.02 a.m. The blast was so powerful it could be heard 50 miles away. The bomb itself left a hole in the ground 8 foot deep and 30 foot wide. Holy shit. It shattered glass in pretty much every building in downtown Oklahoma. All buildings downtown were damaged in some way, Mm -hmm. and quite a few had to be demolished. Wow. Even though they weren't exploded. Right, the damage was still irreparable. Holy shit. Yeah. It was a huge bomb. The explosion took down several major support columns, which would have been avoided. Had the columns been built properly. Yep. Which is actually how the damage took that unique shape. That that kind of weird, like, loop Yeah, shape. yeah, yeah. The arc there. Yep. One third of the building was reduced to rubble. The floors collapsed onto each other. Oh, Yep. From the street, you could see people trapped on the different floors, standing in what was technically the middle of the building. Mm. When first responders got in, they could hear people screaming and crying, but they couldn't see anyone because it was so dark. Once they got lights in, you could look up at the floors above and see these big round circles of coagulated blood that had seeped through the cracks in the floor. These circles were about three to four feet in diameter. Each one would have been a person who had been crushed. Wow. By 9.30 a.m., first responders had set up a fairly efficient victim treatment and processing. By 10.15 a.m., the blood drive begins. Probably around this time, Rebecca Anderson and her husband show up at the Murrah building. They had heard the bomb from their home 30 miles away. Wow. And when they heard that there were children in the building, Rebecca decides to rush to the scene. She begins searching through the rubble for survivors. I saw one story that said that she found four people and another story that said that she wasn't able to find anyone. But she was hit on the head by falling rubble and collapses soon after. Mm. She survived brain surgery to remove a blood blood clot, but her brain begins swelling. She dies days later. Her organs were donated and used to save three more lives. Mm. She is officially the final murder victim of Timothy McVeigh. The bomb claimed the lives of 168 people, including 19 children and at least three pregnant women, Mm. and injured between 500 to over 800 more people. Wow. 80% of the people who died in the bombing had no connection to law enforcement. 
I'm pretty sure nobody who worked at the ATF office actually died. Mm. And 80% of those injured were lacerated by flying glass. That's awful. So around 10 a.m., Dr. Andrew Sullivan was called to the scene because a woman was trapped and the only way to remove her was to amputate her leg. (gasps) He grabs an amputation set and some nylon rope and heads over to the scene. This woman is Dana Bradley. So a first responder had his hand on the beam that has Dana trapped. And the protocol was that if the beam shifted all, they had to go. The beam was lying on her tibia just below the knee. And because of her position, Dr. Sullivan had to lie with his legs by her head and use his non-dominant hand to do the amputation. Mm. This is this is some gold star stuff. As in, it's heavy. Multiple times he believes he's completed the amputation and they try to extract her, but she would still caught. Mm. Ultimately, all of the surgical blades broke. And all he had left was a pocket knife that he had kept sharpened. He used that to cut the quadriceps tendon and they were finally able to free her. Hmm. They weren't able to put her under because... You can't in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, the situation was... They, they were worried that it would just kill her. Yeah. Because her blood pressure was so low and she was in so much shock. Ultimately, Dana Bradley lost her mother and her two children. Her sister was severely injured, completely losing one ear due to the burns. Mm. The LaRue and Luther Trainer family with their granddaughter, four-year-old Ashley Megan Eccles, did not survive the bomb. Kayla Titsworth did not survive the bomb, but her parents and older sister did. That's, I don't know, not really good. Nope. At the daycare center, first responders were digging, moving debris, moving concrete boulders on hands and knees to try to pull these children out. One by one, they'd pull them out and they had these neat folded white sheets that they wrapped the the children in. Mm -hmm. And they were just laid in a line. And a nurse came by and pulled the sheet back just far enough to tag their feet. Which is just such an awful image. Yeah, that's so sad. Okay. I'm gonna do everybody that was in the daycare center. Okay. Okay. This is gonna be tough. But then we'll be out of it. So, there were 21 children in the daycare center. 15 of them died. And that with the four children that were, that I've already talked about, makes up the 19 children. Right. (sighs) Okay. So there are four adults in the daycare center. Scott Williams didn't actually work there. Mm -hmm. He was making a delivery to the daycare center at the time of the bombing. Mm -hmm. He was 24 and his wife was seven months pregnant with their first child. (sighs) Wanda Lee Howell was 34. She was a teacher at the daycare center. She was survived by two daughters and her husband, Melvin. She always carried the Bible with her, and she would say that God came first even before Melvin. (laughs) Which is just really cute. (laughs) Brenda Faye Daniels was 42. She was a teacher at the daycare center. She was a mother and spent most of her time working with... She spent most of her life working with children at child care centers. Dana Leanne Cooper was 24. 
She was the new director at the daycare center. She was in school to become a kindergarten teacher, but felt guilt about that meaning that she'd have less time for her son. Mm. This new job meant that she could bring her son to work with her. She'd been married to her husband, Anthony, for five years, and they had been discussing expanding their family. She had about a year left to complete her degree in early childhood education. All right. Now on to the children, and this is life-ruining. So just... You've got 15 to get through. Okay. All right. Anthony Christopher Cooper II was two years old. He was Dana Leanne Cooper's son. He was happy and had a vibrant personality. Bailey Allman was one. Her birthday was April 18th, the day before. Mm. She is the infamous photo of the baby body in the arms of a firefighter. I don't know if I've seen Did you include that photo? I didn't put it in there because I didn't think you had to see it unless you wanted to. Okay, great. I don't need to see that. Yep. But if you've seen like Oklahoma City photos, like a lot of mm-hmm. them, there's a, a famous photo of this firefighter holding a, a, a baby and it's it's Bailey Allman. Mm. Daniel Bell was 19 months old. She liked birds in the outdoors. <laughs> Zachary Chavez was three. He had been attending the daycare at the Murrah building since infancy. He was a feisty kid. <laughs> <laughs> Antonio Ansara Cooper Jr. was six months old. He was an incredibly happy baby who would make himself laugh while playing with his toys. Oh. Aaron Coverdale, five, and Elijah Coverdale, two, were brothers. Their father, Keith Coverdale, walked the streets for days with their picture, asking if anyone had seen them. Mm. J.C. Ray Coyne was 14 months old and was an only child. She loved the itsy bitsy spider, but she couldn't quite get her fingers to do the movements right. Tyler Eaves was eight months old. He had started at the daycare center the week prior. He was starting to pull himself up on things. His family said that he was bossy and spoiled. (laughs) Tevin Garrett was one. He was a happy baby who loved to dance. His mother, Helena, testified against Timothy McVeigh during his trial. Good. Kevin Lee Gottschalt II was six and a half. He was at the age where that per- and personality where he liked being a little terror. He would pull down curtains and spit beans at his mom. He was curious and he'd smile at his parents and melt their hearts mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be mad at him anymore. Blake Ryan Kennedy was 18 months old was an incredibly friendly kid. He was described as never knew a stranger. He had attended the daycare center since he was six weeks old, and his mother, Laura, worked upstairs in the Health and Human Services. She only suffered cuts and bruises. Mm. Dominic London. I shouldn't pick favorites, but this kid is 100% my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) He was two, and he was a practical joker. His grandma thought he'd grow up to be a comedian. He regularly ran up to the podium during church and turned off the speaker while the preacher was talking. (laughs) I love that kid. Yes, of course. No wonder he's your favorite. He's my favorite. 
Chase Dalton Smith was three. Colton Wade Smith was two. They were brothers and they were inseparable. They were all the only children of Tony and Edya Smith. The wounded, the remaining six children, were considered the miracle babies. Nakia McLeod suffered permanent brain damage. She rarely leaves her mother's side even to this day, but she's still very good at bowling. Oh, good for her. PJ Allen was 20 months old. He was 55% covered in burns. Wow. And his lungs were burned. He had a tracheotomy until he was 13 and he still struggles with breathing. Brandon Denny was 126 days in hospital and underwent four brain surgeries. He lost a chunk of the right side of his brain. He still struggles with speech and his right arm is unusable. Mm. Rebecca Denny was her the younger sister Mm -hmm. she was lucky enough to only suffer from broken bones and body lacerations she was actually the first child to come home and this is the only siblings that survived wow chris Wynn was the oldest he suffered some he, he suffered a bruised brain and a broken jaw And Joseph Webb suffered a broken jaw and arm and had a huge facial laceration that is still a scar. Also, most of them had, like, ruptured eardrums, Mm -hmm. burst eardrums. All right. That's our kids. We're done. Thank God. That was brutal and terrible and sad. We're we're done with the hard part. All the terrible things. Yeah. I just... You know, it kind of goes back to that, like, how do you do the victims when mm-hmm. there's 168 of them? I think that so. I think that focusing on the daycare was a good call, because it's not like the other people don't matter, but children carry a particular weight. Yeah. You know? Yep. And that's kind of the reason I've been super crazy the last, like, couple of weeks, and the reason I wanted an extension to work on mm-hmm. this. But I'm glad that I did, even though it kind of makes me cry. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's kind of the hard stuff was worth doing right. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. Is like, this is probably one of the most important stories that we'll cover, and I want to do the best job I can. Mm-hmm. So let's get into kind of the timeline of what happens next. Okay. So 10.17 a.m., McVeigh is pulled over. On that same day. Yep. Okay, great. So Timothy McVeigh hadn't put the license plate back onto the getaway car. Mm. And he was pulled over for driving without a license. Well, a license plate. The officer noticed a bulge in his jacket and finds an unlawful gun. Mm -hmm. McVeigh is arrested for the first time in his life. And then I've got that picture of him. Mm -hmm. God, he looks so young. He's, He's... like 25 wow no 27 so but yeah my age he's young yeah he's young and you can see his six semper tyrannish shirt mm-hmm. and so mcveigh being like caught caught is dumb luck yeah so so not only is he arrested for the first time because of a stupid driving without a license plate which conspiracy theorists think like oh he was supposed to be the patsy so he did this on purpose mm-hmm but also, I don't know, who fucking knows? Maybe he just 
forgot to put the license plate back on because he was running away from a bomb. Right. I mean, adrenaline will, being what they call uh, hyper aroused, right? When your brain is in that fight or flight response mode. You literally you weirdly smart and weirdly yeah you things. don't you yeah. don't think rationally so doing something like forgetting to put a license plate on yeah I guess that could be a move in like a well organized like Patsy situation mm-hmm. but it also seems pretty likely as a oh shit adrenaline go yeah so so this was dumb luck not just because they arrested him at the time but also so the judge had a full schedule. So they held him over in jail for longer than he would have been. Mm. Because the cop didn't know who he had. No. When he arrested him. He knew that he arrested some random fucking kid with an unlawful firearm. Mm -hmm. And And I actually think that it was that it was not legal in Oklahoma, but it was legal in Kansas or wherever the fuck he got the gun. Right. You know? And so he was held over, which is dumb luck. And then, also dumb luck, the rear axle of the Ryder truck was found intact. It had been blown several blocks from the bombing. And its VIN was still legible. Oh, so they could trace the rental. So they tracked the VIN. They followed the Ryder truck back to the rental place in Junction City, Kansas. Now, the place in Junction City, Kansas actually had on file a North Dakota license with the name Robert Kling. Now let's just take a pause for evil nerd bullshit. 50 bucks says Kling is a Klingon reference because Star Trek and Robert is a reference to Robert Matthews from The Order. Oh, aren't you clever? It's just a guess. Just a guess. Evil nerd. He did everything purposefully. I bet that's why he picked Robert Kling. Right. That makes sense. So the people who rented him the truck described seeing two people. The first one is definitely Timothy McVeigh. Mm-hmm. I've put a thing up. Yeah, the the it's sketch. Totally yeah. Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. And the second one is to this day still just John Doe number two. Really? Which is another reason that people think it might have been he was helped. Yeah. Now the FBI, I believe. Was, who was in charge of this investigation quickly was like oh it's this other dude that they saw a different day but it wasn't just the kansas writer truck people mm-hmm. who said that they saw timothy mcveigh with another person there were a lot of witnesses who saw timothy mcveigh with another person hmm. they just didn't bring those witnesses in during prosecution because they wanted to keep the case clean because right. sedition trials yeah That makes sense. They wanted to make sure that they got this one guy who did this very bad thing and fuck it if we don't get all of these other white supremacists. Because this is important. We need to make sure that we get this one guy. Yeah. Yep. And so I disagree with it, but I get it, but I I don't know. I don't know. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, so right now they think some fucking weird white dude named Robert Kling. But they survey the area and any businesses that may have seen someone with a yellow rider truck. Mm-hmm. And one agent goes to the Dreamland Motel and gets a hit. A man came in a few days prior driving a yellow rider truck and he gave his name as Timothy McVeigh. Okay, smart. Because he's a fucking dumb shit. Which again, 
He must have been being helped. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But it's like, how did you build this, like, three-ton bomb in a year, and you're still fucking stupid enough? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway. So, so they- he had given his name as Timothy McVeigh. Uh Uh-huh. And when agents show up to where McVeigh is in jail, by dumb luck, he's still there because the judge's busy schedule- he actually already knows that it's about the bombing. Yeah, well, of course it is. So on April 21st, McVeigh is officially arrested for the bombing. And because it's such a major case, he's transferred to a more secure facility. As he should be. But that gets leaked to the media, and this is the first time America sees his face. Mm. Which is significant, because when... You know, we, when we were first talking about it, we thought, oh, it was international terrorists, which was not actually that racist because I think a year before the first attempt on the uh, Twin Towers had been. Oh, okay. They, they thought it made sense for it to be an international terrorist. Mm-hmm. But we see Timothy McVeigh's face for the first time and we realize America as a whole realizes that our terrorist is a homegrown, all-American guy. Mm-hmm. And that is the weirdest trauma for America. Right, not just the crime itself, but who perpetrated but he's it. one of us. Mm-hmm. You know? Why, why are you killing your own people, you mm-hmm. know? That just doesn't make sense to anybody. So the fake driver's license also has the address for the Nichols family farm. Mm-hmm. Which leads to Terry Nichols. And in the Nichols search, they find a prepaid calling card, which leads to Michael Fortier. Of course. Now, the calling card is actually also how they find out so much about his movement, Mm -hmm. like, before the bombing, and who he was in contact with, and, you know, the fact that, like, we knew that he called Elohim City and Andreas Strassmeyer and that jazz. So... March 31st, 1997, two years later, the McVeigh trial begins. He's officially sentenced to death August 14th. Good. September 29th, the Nichols trial begins. Now, there's some weird, like, wink-wonk wobbly shit here where, like, the federal and state trials and appeals. Mm -hmm. But ultimately... Nichols is found guilty of 161 counts of murder and sentenced to life without parole. Yes. Which is, yes. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so good. Magnifique. <laughs> <laughs> and May 27th, 1998, Fortier is sentenced to 12 years. Good. And he was released in 2006 and placed in witness protection. And is this is the third picture Fortier or is that McVeigh when yeah, he's older? The third, the third picture is Fortier. That almost to me looks like it could be McVeigh when he's older. I was way confused. You know, so I remember seeing some uh, some sketch artist sketch pictures that that insisted that one of them was Mc or one of them was Andreas Strassmeyer and one of them was McVeigh wearing a wig. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no. That one is McVeigh, and that one's fucking Michael Fortier. Yep. Because <laughs> it looks... Y- McVeigh with a wig looks like Michael Fortier. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. Yeah. So, 
it was it was just a weird thing. I didn't include it because it added to the more conspiracy theories, and I just can't. Yeah, can't definitely not. There's a lot of conspiracy theories. If you want to literally go insane, I welcome you to go and dig them up. But I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> so, and I, I'm okay with Fortier getting the 12 years because, A, I don't think he was that much involved in the Right, he's the most itself. tangentially connected. And he played State's Witness, so he's a big part of why Nichols got life without parole and McVeigh got death. Okay, so like that's something. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna flip state witness and get the real, real, real figurehead, mm-hmm. then okay. Yeah, okay. You know? Now December twelfth, two thousand, McVeigh asks to be executed and gives up his remaining appeals. Interesting. And on June eleventh, 2001, McVeigh is executed by lethal injection at the Terre Haute Federal Penitentiary in Indiana at 7.14 a.m. More than 200 survivors and victims' families watched on closed-circuit television. Wow. And that's the end. Well, damn. Yeah. And, you know, I I think this is one of the most important stories that we're ever going to tell on this podcast to be perfectly honest because weird McVeigh worship is popping up and has been for years because of right-wing extremists well and I think that you know I think it's particularly terrifying because of the sentiment of uh, crewmen on the Death Star right this idea that uh, people who you don't even know could have could have views similar to your own who are literally just going about your, their daily lives somehow because you decide they're the other they're somehow on the opposite they're somehow your enemy like uh, yeah. objectively deciding or sub subject subjectively i'm sorry subjectively deciding mm-hmm. that someone is your enemy because of their location i mean it's as asinine in the first place when it comes to borders but it's it's really uniquely terrifying when it's uh, within your own community because, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's, I guess, passing would be the word. You know, I enjoy the privilege of passing for somebody who looks or could be conservative enough to not be confronted. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's scary because it takes away that like passing privilege. Like right. I don't get to, you know, when it comes to somebody like that, no matter how traditional or uh, conservative I may be able to appear because of my lifestyle, I could still just as easily as anybody else be a victim. Yeah. Well, and also, like, you know, just to cater to the fucking alt-right more, a lot of these people that were murdered in the Murrah building were people of color. Mm-hmm. You know? I'd probably say about half of the, the babies that I listed off were black. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were also natives that were in the building from, like, the Choctaw tribes. And I don't know, man. It just, it just really, it took the wind out of me Mm -hmm. just doing this research and just, I I guess, (laughs) I mean, weirdly enough, McVeigh said it best when he was talking about whether or not he was helped and how we can't handle the truth because the truth is either 
there's this big conspiracy and McVeigh was helped by this awful underground, like, network of evil. Or one guy did all of this by himself. Right. Either we live in a world where it's possible for one man to do that, or we live in a world where there are organizations trying to make this happen, and either way, it's terrifying. Yeah. And I, I can't... I, I, I hope that this story serves as the moral on its own because like I can't say clever things about it. I'm 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 out of brain. Well, I don't think there is anything clever to be said about it. Yeah. You know, this this isn't a particularly fun story. It's really just a horrific story. And thanks for sitting through with us if you did. <laughs> Congratulations, you have a gold star status. Gold star status, yes, gold star status. You want to do a sign off? Yeah, we'll do a sign off. Okay. So, yeah, thanks for listening. This is probably going to be a really long episode, but, well, it's important. It is important, yeah. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for loving us the way we love you. <laughs> no i'm getting weird anyway well yada yada follow us on social media um oh yeah we have a patreon and we have a patreon supporter and caroline's my favorite and i love her forever she's the absolute best she's such a good lady (laughs) so yeah if you want us to be like "Mm, you such a good then you can support us on Patreon and we'll be like, mm, you're so good. Yeah. It doesn't even take much. Just a little, just a little bit. We're not needy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've added some actual solid things like goals and what we going to do. And uh, yeah, if you want to support us on Patreon, that'd be rad. Everything's Palm Pitch Pod, Facebook, Twitter, all that jazz, Instagram. Gmail. Facebook. Gmail. I said Facebook. Yeah, all the things. Just the Google things. like at just just at Palm Pitch Pod. Yeah, just, just Google, Google us. us. It's yeah. cool. We're Googleable. You can Google us. Hello, Google. And leave us a review, and we will love you forever. Oh my God. Uh yeah, that's the stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Is that it? Yeah, that's did it. We do it. We Are did we done? it. We're done. I'm gonna go to okay. bed. One more terrorism, and then we're over. Yeah, I can't wait to be done with terrorism. Yay. But you can't unlearn okay. this shit. Can't unlearn it, but you can stop having it be the only thing you're focused on. <laughs> oh, that's just me? That's just me. <laughs> okay. All right. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Bye.